Hey, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. As we're working through St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the greatest letter ever written on the face of the earth. It's not just written to Rome, it's written to you and me as well, right here in the 21st century and all throughout time. It's been a challenge for readers to try to figure it out, even for our first Pope, St. Peter. In one of his epistles, he says that the stuff that's in, that the stuff that's in uh, St. Paul's letters is difficult to understand and people twist it and uh, unstable people will twist his words and we'll see how throughout christian history a misunderstanding of romans led to a break in the western church in 1517 when the protestant revolution started it is very much to do with the letter to romans and how it is to be understood but we'll get to that uh, in due time right now we're going to pick up the action in chapter two so you want to open up your bible to Romans 2, we're going to start with verse 12. This is one of my favorite sections in the letter to the Romans. And here's what it says. Now, don't forget, right now, St. Paul has already talked about the Gentile world. He's talked about uh, pagans, if you will, and how they have no excuse because God has revealed something about himself to them as well. They may not have the law of Moses, but they do have the natural law. They do have their conscience. We're going to hear more about conscience in just a second. And right now in chapter 2, He's talking to an imaginary debate partner, a Jew, just like Paul. Now, it could be a Jewish Christian like Paul, or maybe not. We're not quite sure about that. But we can say this, that they're going to talk about the law of Moses here. So let, let's pick up the action in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Paul writes, All who sin outside the law will also perish without reference to it. And all who sin under the law will be judged in accordance with it. Okay, so I know I've just read one verse, but let me just stop there for a second. And again, he's talking about the law of Moses. So when he talks about those who sin outside the law, he's talking about pagan Gentiles who don't know the law. It hasn't been given to them. They, they haven't read it or practiced it. But if they live wicked lives, they will not escape God's judgment, even though they don't have the law. But what about those who do have the law? What about the Jews who have been given uh, the commandments, uh, everything that has been revealed in the Old Covenant? Well, Paul says, if you sin under the law, you'll be judged in accordance with it. Let's see what he says next in verse 13 of chapter 2. For, for it is not those who hear the law who are just in the sight of God, rather those who observe the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the demands of the law are written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even defend them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge people's hidden works through Christ Jesus. Okay, let's let's stop there and talk about it a little bit. Now, this is the first time that he's mentioned the law, and he also talks about conscience as well. So th this is important for us to understand that this is a theme that the idea of the conscience is something that actually runs, uh, it's a nice thread that runs all throughout the Old Testament, actually. Let's, let's take a look at a couple verses here. I'm not going to go crazy here, but let's look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. It says this. This is, uh, this is David talking to Solomon here. 
And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So that's interesting. So, so this idea that the Lord searches the hearts of every single person and he understands every plan and every thought as well. So this is something that we, um, we can't escape from. Here, here's another verse here. We could also look at, I'm not going to read this one, but the book of wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 17, verse 11 is another one you can look up. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. Listen to this. I, the Lord, search the mind and test the heart to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, St. Paul has just gotten done saying uh, in, the, in the last little bit that we looked at, and you can look at all the previous episodes, listen to them on the Faith Explained Archives, RelevantRadio.com and the Relevant Radio app, wherever you get your podcasts. He's been talking about how God will judge everyone according to their deeds. Now, it's interesting. There, there's so much talk in today's culture. Who am I to judge? People say this. Well, we, <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are really three elements to, to every human action. And I'm going to give you a little acronym here. CIA. This has nothing to do with a spy agency. Circumstances, intentions, actions. CIA, circumstances, intentions, and actions. What we can see are the actions of people, objective actions of people. What we can't see, what we cannot see, are the circumstances that brought about that action and the intent. So here, here's an example. Maybe it's a silly example, but here's just a little example. If someone is caught stealing baby formula from a grocery store, this guy is caught stealing, and we know that the act of theft is objectively wrong. However, having said that, we don't know what the circumstances of this guy are. Perhaps he just got laid off from work. He has no money in the bank. He's destitute. He has a, a child at home who needs to be fed, and he has no food. The, the intent, the reason why he does this, is to try to feed his child. Maybe there's some other ways to do it. Maybe he could have gone to a food bank. He, maybe this wasn't the, the wisest choice in the world. But his intent is to feed his child. So his circumstances are he's broke. The intent is to feed his child. The action is the theft. So we have to look at the outward action. And one of the things that we have to judge in this world is objective outward actions. This is why we have the entire system of law in the Western world. We have to judge whether people break traffic laws objectively. Did they do it? Did this person run the red light? Um, other laws, murder, uh, you name it, theft, a great example, like we're just talking about now. And, and people can be prosecuted as to the act. And maybe a judge will take into account circumstances if they're able to determine these things. But God actually does know the truth about all circumstances and people's real intent. He can't be fooled on this. So, but we have to judge the outward action. What we can't judge when it comes to others is the circumstances, the intent, and we can't judge somebody's eternal destiny. We simply don't know where they're headed. We can't say this person's going to hell in a handbasket. The church has never said definitively, you know, who's in hell? Who's the list of people in hell? We talk about the saints who are in heaven. We know they're in heaven because they've given some evidence. Uh, people's prayers have been, have been answered through their intercession. Miracles have been done by God through the intercession of these saints. 
but it doesn't work on the other side. We don't have a list of all, all the people in the underworld. Uh, having said that, having said that, it's important to understand that God does see the things that we can't see. He, he does search the mind, as Jeremiah says, and test the heart. And he gives to everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So that, that's an important thing to, to look at when it comes to, uh, to conscience. Also, just a couple of verses from the, from the New Testament I want to look at here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. St. Paul writes in another place, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his commendation from God. So again, this is when he says, don't pronounce judgment, don't pronounce eternal judgment on somebody before the time. It's all going to be revealed. It's all going to come out in the wash at the second coming of Christ. The letter to the Hebrews, this is a really good one. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, the thoughts and intentions of the heart are discerned by God and can be revealed by God. The word of God can sometimes bring that out and, and convict people. Say, man, I need to go to confession. And one more thing, James chapter 1, verse 22. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So this is, again, the connection between faith and deeds. We're going to see this come into play as Paul goes on through the letter. So there's a great, great section in the catechism on the conscience of the human person. It starts with, uh, it, it's from paragraph 1776 to paragraph 1802. And you can read that section on your own, but I just want to read the first one, paragraph 1776. It's kind of a, a beautiful passage in the catechism. It says, deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. Its voice ever calling him to love and to do what is good and avoid evil sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. That's a beautiful passage in uh, the Catechism, paragraph 1776. So it's, it's interesting because, as we're going to see later, the conscience of a human person. And this is what Cardinal Newman said. He called it the Aboriginal Vicar of Christ, your conscience. Cardinal Newman was actually really fond of using the term Aboriginal. And of course, we, we think about the Aboriginal peoples, the original inhabitants of a given land. But he's talking about the, the original people, period. He's talking about Adam and Eve, our first parents, and the mess they got themselves into. He talks about original sin, Cardinal Newman does, as the great aboriginal calamity that sort of plunged us into the situation that we're in right now. But he also talks about conscience as being the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Of course, we call the Pope the vicar of Christ. He is uh, The Pope's job is to really echo the teaching of Christ throughout the centuries and be authentic and keep it going and make sure people hear it. But long before the incarnation of Christ, long before there ever was a church or a Pope, God spoke to men and women through their conscience. Christ spoke to them through their conscience. And what was he saying through their conscience? What is the message of 
his conscience or her conscience, it is essentially the same as the Mosaic law. This is really the one of the big points Paul was trying to make here, that people's conscience echoes the Ten Commandments. Long before God inscribed the Ten Commandments on stone tablets and gave them to Moses, he inscribed those commandments on the human heart and soul via the conscience, the message from eternity to your soul. It's the same. The conscience tells you the same stuff the commandments do, the Ten Commandments. And we see this all the time. This happens in our lives. And if we're, if we're really uh, open to it and, and we have the eyes to see, the inner eyes to see what's going on in our soul, we, we can acknowledge this. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. So, so in chapter 2, as Paul's having this imaginary debate with, with a Jewish friend, he can imagine this person saying, okay, Paul, I, I hear what you're saying. You, you said back in chapter 1 that it's possible for Gentiles to please God or not please God because they, they sort of have this natural law revealed by God and they can either obey it or not. But, but, but how could they possibly really obey God or know what is good? Because they don't have the law of Moses, which has been given to the Jews. They don't know about this, the Gentiles, the pagans. So, so how could they possibly do something to please God? This is why Paul says the conscience is really the voice of the commandments in people's souls. But the, another point that he really wants to make here, Paul, in, in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Knowledge alone is not enough. It's not enough to know the law. You've also got to do the law. And this is one of the things that Paul wants to make clear, is that, yeah, God gave his explicit laws. He told the people of Israel more about himself. Because, yeah, the Gentiles, the pagans had natural revelation. God gave the Jews supernatural revelation through the law given to Moses and all the other things he did for them, the exodus from Egypt, all the ways that he spoke to them and revealed truth to him, to them through the prophets, all that stuff. But it's not enough to just go to synagogue on Saturdays and, and sit under this teaching and hear it and know about it. You've also got to do it. It's the same with Catholics. It's not enough to go to Mass on Sunday and just hear the Word of God proclaimed to maybe even check out a Bible study, listen to the Faith Explained program on Relevant Radio. It's not enough to know it. You've actually got to live it out. You've got to become obedient to it. This is the point. That's why he says that it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And when he says justified, this is the first time in the letter to the Romans that he uses this term justified, justification. And this word, I think we need to take a moment to explain it a little bit, because this is exactly the word that touched off the term, the concept that touched off the Protestant revolution. It really has to do with salvation. How are we saved? How are we justified? How are we made righteous before God? And Martin Luther said, when he doctored the text of Romans, when Dr. Luther doctored, doctored Romans, he inserted this word into his, into his copy of Romans alone, justification by faith alone. Well, that's not in the text. So what, what exactly is justification? I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is one of the most confusing concepts you'll ever come across. Now, maybe for some people out there might be saying, ah, it's not a big deal. It's, it's child's play. 
I find writing on, on this concept of justification incredibly confusing when it's done by both Catholics and Protestants. So I'm going to try to try to simplify it for you here. Okay. If you want to read more about this, go to the Catechism, paragraph 1987 to 1995. Those paragraphs, 1987 to 1995. That goes into this topic of justification. Justification has to do with how we are made righteous before God, as, as Paul says in Romans 2.13. And, and really, it's two, it's two things. It's forgiveness of sin. That's number one. This is the initial justification. This is how we are we are get into a relationship with God. He's got to forgive our sin. And we can't earn this. We cannot earn this initial justification, the forgiveness of sin. But that's not all. There's another part to it, which is how, as Brent Petrie says, this is how God also redeems us from slavery to sin. It's not just being forgiven of our sins and going back time and time again to get forgiven again and again in the sacrament of confession, let's say. We also need to be set free. And as the New Testament says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Those are the words of Jesus. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The Son of God. And, and Jesus does want to set us free from being slaves to sin. Martin Luther said this. This, he, this is what Martin Luther said the human person was like. He said that we are dung hills covered with snow. <laughs> okay, wow. That is quite, a, uh, quite an illustration there. Dung hills covered with snow. All of our deeds, it's, it's the way we live our life, it's like dung, and God covers us with this snowy, pure blanket that is Jesus Christ and his grace and his, and his forgiveness. And just like the snow covers the dunghill, when we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see the dung, he sees only Christ, his son, and, and, and he accepts us because of that. Well, I would say this, that's a pretty crappy argument, pun intended, because God knows what's underneath the snowy blanket, okay? He knows what's there. He can smell it. He can, he, he, he can sense it. He knows. He knows. And he wants to get rid of it. He wants to change us. He wants to transform us so that that, that becomes something else entirely. It becomes fertilizer maybe for a good life instead. So this is the second part of, of justification. It has to do with being redeemed from the slavery to sin and being sanctified, being made holy. And this is, this is what Paul said in the beginning of his letter to the Romans. I'm writing to you in Rome who are called to be saints. You're called not just to be forgiven, but to become a new creation, to become the best version of yourself, to become a canonizable saint. And this is what God's going to do for you. So like I said, there, there's all kinds of very, very obtuse and dense writing on this concept of justification. The best I've ever heard anybody explain this, by the way, it's just so clear, is a guy named David Curry. I'll get into this more in the next episode, but he writes in his book, Born Fundamentalist, Born Again Catholic, he's a convert to Catholicism, that just what, what Protestants mean by justification is just this initial forgiveness. And then they have another word for becoming holy. It's called sanctification. But when Catholics talk about justification, it's both of those terms in one. It's our initial forgiveness plus the process of becoming a saint. It's all in one word. So in, in many ways, it's just a semantical argument. What do you mean by this word? That, that's created a lot of confusion about it as well. But more on this next time we've run out of time. But stick around. We've got our Q&A segment coming up right now 
on The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Kale Clark, and this is our study on Romans. And now to the Q&A session. Okay, as we open up our Q&A mailbag right now on The Faith Explained show, I want to remind you that you can send me your question via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also try to find me on Twitter, which is now called the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. All right, so today's question comes to me via email, and it comes to me from Lindley, and she is writing from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She's listening to Relevant Radio, the old-fashioned way on radio, 1640 AM. And I'm so thankful that you wrote in Lindley. And here's, here's what she says in her email. She says, hi, Kale. I would like to hear your best elevator speech for evangelizing people into the Catholic Church. When we don't have tons of time, how do we best draw people into our church? I thought this would make for an interesting show. Thanks for all you do, Kale, to further God's kingdom. Signed, Lindley. Well, thank you, Lindley. We're all in this together. We all are agents of the kingdom, if you will, out there in the world. And God's depending on each one of us to evangelize, as you kind of noted in your email and sometimes we don't have a lot of time with certain individuals. And, and I, I would say a couple things here. When it, when it comes to um, when you're in a situation when, when you don't have a whole lot of time to talk to people and you want to throw in something about, about the gospel, it, it's really tough to do that. Um, it, when you're maybe checking out at the grocery line, you could, you could say, God bless you to a cashier. And you know, they might say, huh, you know, <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> or they might say, well, why would you say that? And, and maybe you can get into a deeper conversation. Um, you got to kind of pick your spots. I, I would say this. I, I spent a couple summers when I was outside of the Catholic Church when, during my years in the evangelical world. I spent a couple summers in New York City doing street evangelism. And I would go to Central Park and I'd, I'd go all over the place with, with a group of people. And we would just approach strangers and we would try to talk to them about the gospel. And sometimes people would talk to us, maybe out of curiosity, and other people would tell us to go away, get all sorts. And I'm not saying that's a bad approach. Um, it will work with some people. It will work with some people. That's how I initially came back to faith in Christ. It was through when I was, you know, kind of wandered away from, from the faith and I was in university and I got a knock on the door from some people doing campus evangelism and they, they wanted to do a religious survey with me. That was their opening line. If you were to die tonight and stand before Almighty God and he were to ask you this question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, some people would have slammed the door, but I thought that's a very good question. So let come on in. Let's talk. My roommates thought I was nuts. but So that will work with some people if you just kind of cold call them, if you will, on the gospel. And maybe you could use a question like that. Use the Socratic method. But I would say that in most cases, your best shot is to work with the people that you actually have a relationship with. Now, you can do stranger evangelism for sure, but I think that in the context of relationship is really where these these questions and this this ability to explain the gospel can can really because you have more time. You have more time. You don't have to do an elevator pitch. And I and I will tell you a little bit about the elevator pitch in just a second, but uh, there was a, a a Protestant author by the name of John Stackhouse. Uh, he's still living today wrote a book a few years ago called Humble Apologetics. Humble Apologetics. And what he said was, was this. He said, you know, one of the best ways that you can do evangelism and share your faith 
is to ask other people what they believe. Ask them what they believe. Start with that. And you'd be surprised, you know, no matter what the, the religious background of the person you're talking to is, if they're an atheist, if they're a Muslim, if they're a Jewish person, if they are Hindu, it doesn't matter. Most people will be very happy to talk to you because people, I don't know if you noticed this, people like talking about themselves. Um, and so if you ask them, hey, well, what's your religious journey been like? Could you tell me about it? Most people will. Most people will talk. But here's what happens at the end of that. Very often, and if these conversations take place maybe in one shot or maybe over a period of, of several meetings, cups of coffee, whatever the case may be, very often when they're finished, they will turn around and ask you the same question. How about you? What, what, what do you think about faith? What, what religion do you belong to? Tell me about your spiritual journey. It's amazing how people will reciprocate. And then you have a perfect opportunity to talk to them. And you're not trying to jam it down their throat. You're not trying to buttonhole them and put them into a corner and ask them, you know, have you accepted Jesus as your savior? Uh, will you enter the Catholic church? Um, here's the form for your RCIA. Just sign this right here and we're done. No, I mean, th th they're asking you. And, and, and they're waiting with bated breath sometimes to hear to hear the answer. So that, that I think, is, is a really good way to do it in the context of a relationship and a, and a true friendship. And even if they're not responsive to the gospel, that doesn't mean that, that we just move on to the next person. We, we, we stay friends with that. They might need us more than ever if that's the case. And we're not just looking for, we want everyone to hear the gospel and be saved. But we do, uh, we, we, we're not looking for evangelistic notches in our belt, so to speak. We, we care about these people. We're true friends regardless. So when it, when it comes time to make that pitch, to talk about your faith, there, there can be sort of an elevator aspect to it. Maybe if you only have 30 seconds. Here's the, the, the method that I like to say is use what's called the, the BCAD method. What was my life like in the BC period? That means before Christ or before a major milestone in my life. And then the cross is in the middle. BC plus, it's really a cross, not the plus sign. BC plus AD. And AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, what happened after that? How's my life different now? So before Christ, the moment of the cross, and then Anno Domini, what happens afterwards? They say, well, what if I was always a Catholic? Uh, ever since I was a baptized Catholic. There never was a BC period for me. Well, Maybe before you received a vocation or before maybe you had a major struggle of faith in your life. What was it like on the, on the other side of that? And then what, what helped you to, to answer your question or, or get you through? What, what that moment where, where you received the grace of Christ? Maybe the sacrament of confession after many, many years, whatever the case may be. And here's how my life is different now. And you can make that as short or as long as you want. You can, if you only have 30 seconds, you can make it 30 seconds. If you have five minutes, you can expand it to five minutes. If you have an hour, three hours, a lifetime to talk to somebody about it, you can you can make it longer. And uh, and I think that's a good little mental model: BC and then the cross and then AD, BC plus AD. So that's that's a little way that you can kind of do an elevator pitch. And uh, and I don't know if the, these thoughts are helpful to you, Lindley, but I do thank you for writing in to me. That's a great question, and. As my friend Cardinal Collins likes to say, the Catholic faith is more caught than taught. We, we kind of imbibe it, if you will, or, uh, by, by hanging out with people who are, who are people of faith. And uh, it kind of rubs off in many ways. People kind of pick up on the vibes, the vestiges of our lives. They kind of stick with people. And, and so it's not so much just a conversation or many conversations, though they can be helpful. It, it's, it's the overall impact as well. 
You're listening to The Faith Explained. Once again, you can send me your question for our Q&A mailbag segment. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, faith at relevantradio.com. I'm Cale Clark. I'll join you later today on The Cale Clark Show, live at 5 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio. Stay tuned for all of our wonderful programming coming up next. God bless you.